صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another show of Palestine Remembered. This week, we are sharing our time with our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. We're joined by a fantastic advocate for Afghanistan, a dear friend of Palestine, a dear friend of humanity, Diana Sayyad, who's the CEO of the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights. She's a lawyer and general all-round good person. Good morning, Diana. How are you? Good morning, Nasser. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and thank you for your time. Now, you and I have spoken just before we came on here. This program this week is dedicated to you and your people. Thank you for everything you're doing. In the first instance, how are you doing? Ah, thank you for asking, actually. I, um, we are out here surviving at the moment, um, you know, every, taking every day as it comes and relying really heavily on updates from friends and family back in Afghanistan and obviously in the dias- wider diaspora community. But what we're experiencing here in Australia, in Nam as well, which is where I'm speaking to you from, also like to acknowledge that we're meeting on unceded stolen lands and I'm dialing in from the lands of the Burundi people of the Kulin Nation. You know, we we in the Afghan Australian diaspora community are, you know, so fortunate that we're not currently stuck in the predicament that a lot of our comrades and compatriots are in that there's a lot going on. So I'm doing I'm doing all right in comparison. And the community here, I mean, there's such a, a huge part. I mean, there's the ones that have come as your parents did many years ago, but then there's those that are sitting on temporary visas. How are they going? Yeah, look, that's a really good question because there's been a rich and diverse sort of migration history of Afghans to Australia. There's been different waves over different periods, which again goes to show, you know, that it's not just this phenomena that has you know has been created lately it's not this this Afghanistan hasn't just been in the news in the last week um as much as the media is trying to portray it as this like new you know the Taliban's come back it's been years and decades of um a lot of destabilization in the country a lot of intervention as people would know post 9-11 when Australia joined the US-led coalition forces this has been you know since the since the early sort of 80s when you know the cold war was happening and the Afghanistan was used as part of a proxy war between the US and Russia in the, the former USSR so different waves of Afghans came to Australia and, and resettled in other countries around the world because of different sort of times in history where there's been war, then there was civil war, then there was the Taliban in the 90s, and then there was the US-led intervention. And so we've seen, you know, different communities come out, um, those who could um, get out 
earlier on did so um, as refugees and then had different families sponsor them out. And then obviously later on, the migration histories shifted a lot and the rhetoric around refugees sort of shifted to depending on who was um, in power. And, you know, in, in the 2000s, um, following the Tampa crisis, there was, a, you know, a lot of um, Hazara minority Afghans that came out to Australia. So from 2013 onwards, anyone who came to Australia by boat was then granted temporary protection visa and there was no permanent pathway for them to get permanent protection or permanent visas which would allow them to get citizenship and sponsor their family. So those that cohort of Afghan refugees from the Hazara ethnic minority group who have been in Australia now for eight, nine, ten years, I can't even imagine what that would be like to be living your life in limbo with no hope for where you could you know, get that level of security or stability. Because with that, you know, you'd be able to sponsor your family out, you know, plan for yourself. I, I just, I can't even imagine it. I'll say, honestly, it breaks my heart. I mean, living in a perpetual state of flux because of the dark wizard, you know, we call him the dark wizard, John Howard, you know, will decide who comes and the manner in which they will uh, come. I mean, he just played to that really racist underlying nature of this settler colonialist country. We talked earlier on before we came on air about the geopolitics. I learned a few things. Why don't you talk to our audience about Afghanistan, its position in the world and just how tragically, as with the Palestinians, you've become such pawns. We really do. And I've found in the last, the, the time blurs a bit because especially when you're calling in from Melbourne lockdown I have to sometimes look and see what day it is you know two weeks ago when all of this was starting to happen where you know you were seeing the Taliban sort of gain ground and people were so worried at the pace of which they were in fact encroaching into Kabul that um, there was a lot of uh, narrative and, and cr critical political analysis that was missing from the the western sort of media and I was really conscious that there was a lot of sort of the Afghan troops are, are abandoning their their posts um, the president has fled the country you know why are they uh, not standing to fight did we not train them to, um, you know, stand up for themselves and fight back against the Taliban, etc, etc, etc. Really unhelpful narratives uh, that the sort of Western media was spinning on repeat uh, that I just felt was really flattening, but also very simplistic view of, of what has been generations and generations of Afghans being sold out, being negotiated with and against, um, and being used as a proxy. Um, you know, we, we talked briefly, I mentioned that I feel like Afghanistan, you know, has been very unluckily positioned um, geopolitically between neighbours like Pakistan, uh, we've got Russia to the north, China to the north, we've got all the um, sort of Central Asian republics, and then um, over to the other side, we've got Iran. So, you know, if we're not sort of being you know, looked upon um, as, as how they can uh, gain access to our natural resources, for example, by Beijing. We are looked down upon um, by Tehran for being, you know, like um, they look down upon us quite a bit. Um, and then obviously Moscow, how they were, we were used as proxy war during when they were the former USSR. And then Islamabad, who you know, they've played a big role in funding the Taliban, housing them and, you know, between all of them, they've, you know, gone on to deny a lot of rights to Afghan refugees who have then fled into their neighbouring countries. So there's a lot there to unpack, but geopolitically, 
incredibly vulnerably positioned, but also, you know, there's a lot that was played behind the scenes through back channel deals with the Taliban themselves when um, under Trump last year, he was negotiating um, with them and giving them a level of legitimacy that they're now, you know, using to their advantage. He released 5,000 prisoners, gives them the legitimacy of direct negotiations, does the deal. And now I don't want to forgive Biden, but he's getting pilloried for what's happened here. The, the seeds were sown for 20 years. I mean, the reality is Western imperialism's sake. It's, everything sits in a binary space. Either it's a presence or absence of war. There is no, let's leave them alone. Let's spend a trillion, half of the two trillion we spent on bombs, a trillion helping them build a country and economy. Something that really irks me is the narrative in Australia, how we've gone to hearing how the soldiers feel. You know, the chief of the Defence Force during the week said, I want my soldiers to know that their efforts weren't in vain. Parents, you know, almost throwing their babies over a fence. And there was a picture on one of the major newspapers with the soldier holding this baby, humanising the soldier. That baby's place is in its mother's arms. And there's a reason that picture is taken. And it's because of the actions of, of you and your, your country. How does that translate? How, do you, how does it make you feel when you see that sort of stuff? It's, again, the way that the white violence is legitimised and looked upon as necessary. And they have to come in once again to save the brown and black Muslims who don't know any better and you know it's a form of white supremacy epitomized and that in and of itself strips us as Afghans of our agency and our will to self-determine and govern our own lives and that you know again it comes back to the point around um, you know how we've, the country is, is consistently over decades being destabilized and consistently had intervention in our politics through imperialism we've become like almost a backyard for everyone's battles whether it's between different ideologies whether it's for ISIS housing al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden it's just become an epicenter for all of the woes of the world and it's tragic it's tragic because you know Afghans themselves have always paid the highest price for all of it and you know Afghan culture and that's the thing that I get really upset about and I know this is something that, that your Palestinians and our, our fellow brothers and sisters in Palestine can really relate to in that in all of this, we had denied our culture, our Watan ancestral homes. I've never seen where my grandparents grew up, where my parents went to school. I, you know, I have to live through their memories. I have to live through the art and the literature and the music and the traditions and the language, of course. And I just filled with so much grief sometimes about, you know, how many people that have been lost, like such thinkers, the intellectuals, the academics, the writers, the poets, all of that flourishing life that was completely denied to me, my family, my siblings, you know, my children probably. And that really, really upsets me. But, you know, and that also, again, coming back to your question, it's a long-winded way of, of answering. Yeah, in the last couple of weeks, you know, seeing the way that war veterans have and their voices and the, their peak bodies have been, again, platformed and centred and the reassurances given to, to them that this war and the intervention and then the nation building and capacity building work that was done was not in vain. 
I don't want to, again, buy into those binaries, though, because I have a lot of capacity for empathy. And um, I think that goes to show about how Afghans and our generosity of spirit, because again, I, I, I feel for them too. Like it's not a Afghans versus the veterans. It's not a Australian war heroes versus the brown and black Taliban and the, um, you know, Muslims. It's actually, we're all sort of pawns in these, in these systems that decisions that are made to go into war, decisions that are made to intervene in countries, decisions that are made beyond our realms um, and choices to go and fight battles that aren't in fact our own and I do have deference that people have many of them probably had the best of intention but it comes down to impact and the impact and who has paid the highest price consistently over these decades has been I don't even like to say ordinary Afghans because if you've ever met an Afghan they're extraordinary but just afghans themselves from all walks of life from all backgrounds from any religious or ethnic minority from any walk of life throughout the country and we are so diverse and the plurality that exists within afghanistan itself is testament to you know our resilience and our abilities to succeed but in the war veteran question i also want people whoever's listening to also question about we had last just only it was november 2020 which is you know just over six months ago, there was a damning report of alleged war crimes committed by the Australian Defence Force during these 20 years in Afghanistan. And to date, not one person has been held accountable under the Brereton report. General Angus Campbell came out and he apologised to the people of Afghanistan. He apologised to the then President Ashraf Ghani, but nothing has ensued since. So I just really want to also question those narratives of these soldiers that are holding babies and these soldiers that are helping people onto planes. Yes, we appreciate it. Thank you. But why are we here in the first place that your role in and of itself is predicating that, you know, you guys have to even do that work? So we just have to question it all and why we're even here because it just becomes so simplistic and lost. Australians don't realise just how many different cultures and the beauty, the diversity of Afghanistan, just the diversity of cultures and thinkers. And- yeah, yeah. And if you've ever gone out and visited Dandenong and you've even gone to any of the restaurants there to try our amazing food, you even know going from one store to the next, which are basically next door to each other, the food is so, so diverse, so different, you know, even just from different parts of Afghanistan, they have different way that they make their bread. This is what I grieve, Nasser. I grieve so much of that. Um, and, you know, how many more generations do we have to lose that, are, you know, now that we're seeing them fleeing, that brain drain as well of educated, of really established sort of people who have given their lives to rebuilding the nation, who have invested so much of themselves you know even a lot of foreign educated afghans went back post um, the intervention in about the you know the 2003-2004 era where there was a lot of hope then that maybe we could actually reconstruct rebuild re-establish ourselves as a nation that would not give in to our neighbors and other interests and our us. So there, there's so much there and it's, yeah, it's, it's devastating. The images are they're so haunting and 
Maurice Payne was crying in, in Parliament, I think, during the week, speaking about she hasn't shed a tear for Afghanistan ever, but now she's suddenly feeling some sort of human conviction. People don't flee peace. They flee terror. A Taliban 2.0, it's not going to be a pleasant place. Yeah, and look, I even hesitate to say Taliban 2.0, and I know I made a bit of a slip up when I said that in Q&A on Thursday night. I don't even think it's 2.0. I, I think it's the same Taliban. You know, they actually never left the country entirely after the US intervention. They may have kept a, a lower profile um, and all returned back to Pakistan where they've been housed and that's where they've been trained, you know, funded. So I don't even think they're a 2.0. I think it's just re returning back to who they've always been. They've always been there. And it's just really unfortunate that um, we weren't able to consolidate and strengthen. And I don't know, I feel that the Afghans were sold out majorly by Trump at um, Doha last year when they entered into negotiations with the, with the Taliban and this so-called peace deal. Because as soon as you do that, you legitimise who they are. You legitimise them as a somewhat ad hoc governance body. Afghans are really sold out and they've green-lighted this, this resurgence. And that is what they crave more than anything is recognition and legitimacy. Just like the State of Israel. Following Q&A, you dominated on the show. David Darren, what was the other D? Oh, I mean, they're just white blokes. You all start with D. We can call you all David. Well, there was also a Diana on the panel. You're a, a woman of colour, and a, so it was okay. But <laughs> after that, support, what was the response from the Australian public? I have learnt from my previous experience being on Q&A, which for all of those listening at home, it's still a terrifying platform for women of colour, for Muslims, for anyone who chooses to have a critical analysis or even try to represent any form of nuance, it is not the space. It is there to stoke the flames, get um, viewership up and to, you know, genuinely have a debate though, which, which I appreciate. But it's particularly terrifying and no new format of it sort of being a bit more casual on a Thursday night in a different time slot is going to change that. But I don't read the comments, Nasser. I really feel like if you're going to be taking up um, space that is not the mainstream status quo, that is your survival kit right there. You've got to not read the comments. Um, I always tell people that if you know for a fact that there are Twitter trolls that are going to be out in force, you just get your Twitter tribe out to respond. And I think that's really important. Like the actual structural landscape of the media in Australia has not changed. And I don't see it changing anytime soon as long as the Murdoch press sort of dominates. So the only thing that we can do is create spaces for ourselves, train our people to come out. Let's show that, that they're not, they can't dominate the platforms, um, that we also have voices, that we can also respond, that we can also come out and show support. And I think the Palestinians do a great job at that too, in terms of we can, if we're speaking truth to power, Ultimately, at the end of the day, if people are offended by a name slip up, why are they not offended by war crime, alleged war crimes? Why are they not offended by the fact that the intervention actually happened over 20 years? Why are they not offended by this withdrawal and this exit strategy that has left in such shambles? That's the sort of thing that people should be offended by, not by a name slip up. 
But unfortunately, when you are sort of speaking that level of truth, people don't want to hear it. And I get it. The truth is hard. It's hard. It makes people have to really see things differently, question narratives that they've bought into. Um, And unfortunately, it it forces people to have to look at Afghans and us as a people as human beings. And they're so used to not having to do that and have to, you know, buy into old colonial tropes and the deeply, deeply Islamophobic and Questioning anyone's narratives and internalised truth is um, hard work. The petition that was launched, Yana, how's that going? Yeah, amazing. Um, We're just about to hit 200K, which is in less than a week. So it's phenomenal. And for someone who worked as a campaigner at Amnesty International for five plus years, um, I can say that that is incredible. So it goes to show that the cross-section of Australians that are showing up in solidarity and support of Afghanistan, of Afghans here in Australia, is testament, again, to the fact that we can't just let the political elite dictate the narratives for us. We need to take that back the hold space and and question it and I do see that even veterans were signing our petition you know they were trying to come out and support us and I do feel that that is a good litmus test for where we're at currently and people have to update their thinking you can't just have these binaries anymore you have to understand that issues are complex but when push comes to shove these issues need to be humanised and there is there are so many tangible responses that we can make beyond hand-wringing and pontification. So I just, yeah, I do urge people to sign the petition. Um, you can send MP letters. There is obviously we've got a landing page that you can go and see, places that you can donate to on our link tree. There's a lot that people can do and I realise that everyone's going through it. People who are in lockdown in Sydney or here in Melbourne or all around the all around the country are dealing with their own things and I know it's not an easy time for a lot of Australians but this is actually something that I'm seeing a lot of cut through and the sympathies that are coming out need to be turned into something more tangible and I hope that we are going to step up to the plate. What we'll do listeners is put all of those links in the podcast so you'll be able to find those really easily at 3cr.org.au. The US is committed to a 31 August exit, taking out all of their troops, all of their equipment. That's going to take a minimum of two days, let's say. So that leaves us to the, takes us to the 29th. We've only got a couple of days. At the moment, ScoMo was generous in saying he's going to give 3,000 refugee places out of the intake of 13. So he's not going to increase the total refugee intake. He's just going to leave us with 3,000 for Afghanistan. Is there any hope getting some of those numbers here? I mean... Yeah, look, and I'm, I'm, you know, I do see a lot of that criticism in the media playing out. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm giving a bit of deference to the fact that I think that everyone was sort of a bit um, stunned by the pace and, and the rapid way that the Taliban sort of... Um, re-emerged and took back power. So a lot of nation states have been scrambling. But I do want to put the point around, well, if Biden had actually put this date as the 31st of August, why was it then 
that plans weren't made earlier. So I think, again, it's coming back to, well, they probably didn't expect the Taliban to make good on the peace deal. I don't know. I can't speculate as to what went, what transpired, what has been happening at that higher level around the exit strategy. There's no transparency around what plans were actually made around the, around the exit. Um, we can only speculate. And clearly the scramble that's happening now, no one foresaw. Because, yeah, I'm hearing a lot of critical viewpoints on that. But, you know, I, I, I'm worried. I'm genuinely like I haven't slept. I barely have eaten. I wake up with this pit in my stomach worrying about all those people who now are incredibly at risk. People who were working for the government, people who, you know, were organising activists in civil society. They were running organisations, women human rights defenders, journalists particularly with um tolo news who which was one of the most established really successful news stations which was run by a um, fellow melbourneian actually sad mosani afghan australian very well connected did incredible work with tolo news um, and he and his uh, entire sort of em- employee um all of his employees have now have now fled i believe um they're at risk not to mention um other ethnic minorities you know we're, we're all ethnic minorities in afghanistan which is probably where people get a bit confused around well where who's the majority and who's the minority is the majority oppressing the minority it's we are all ethnic minorities but there is just a majority um that subscribe to Sunni Islam over the minority, which are Shia. But that is across all ethnic groups. Um, Like, for example, not all Hazaras are Shia, but a majority of them are. But I don't like to get too much into those sort of narratives because it's very much, again, a wep- it's been weaponized as a divisive tool to divide Afghans um, along tribal lines, along sectarian lines, even along um, regional lines like you're either from Herat or you're from Kunduz or you're from Kabul or you're from Kandahar it's like you know Australians love to pit Sydney and Melbournians against each other like you know people from Perth always pay out people from Adelaide you know and then collectively Australians pay out New Zealand but if that was to become weaponized and used in terms of a destabilizing tool it can actually be really dangerous so I really don't like to buy into a lot of that. I feel like everyone right now is fleeing because they have genuine fear. I feel like everyone right now is at risk of the Taliban. So it's something not to be not to be taken lightly. Just in in a couple of minutes we've got left, Diana. Is there what about resistance? Is there any hope? I mean, the army's gone. They surrendered. You know, poor guys weren't paid, etc. You know, had to buy their own munitions and food. Is any hope of a resistance to to the Taliban? Look, this is what I worry about, actually, is that um, there will be, you know, uh, it's within the coming months, within the next year, I think the, the stability of the country will really be riding on what happens internally in, in terms of um, whether there is a civil war that breaks out because there are forces at play that are resisting. There are protests happening all over the country against the Taliban. There has always been sort of this ideology that doesn't, uh, you know, support the Taliban. And I think this is sort of what I was trying to convey on Q&A on Thursday night, that Afghans themselves want to self-determine their own lives. They don't necessarily agree with the Western intervention and the US and allied troops coming into the country. 
But, you know, there was a lot of progress that was then made when the Taliban was ousted. That is a fact. We Civil society was burgeoning. Journalists and the media landscape was actually thriving. So there were a lot of gains made post the intervention, and there is a lot of sensitivities around that. We can critique it as well as acknowledge that there were gains made. In the same breath, we can also not want the Taliban to come into power because of the ideology that they're spewing and the and the rights that will be inevitably um, compromised. So, and then, you know, we can also say what that current Afghan government that was propped up very much by the US was also incredibly corrupt. There was a lot of ill-gained money that they were siphoning off to their bank accounts in the Emirates. You know, I have no doubt that this current president uh, left the country and is going to be fine for the rest of his life. Um, and that is not from any government pension. It's from the money that he would have um, been securing and putting away from himself because he knew that this day probably was inevitable. So, you know, we can critique Western intervention. We cannot want the Taliban. We can also critique the government that was in, was in power. We can hold a multitude of, 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 of feelings right now. So I do worry about the um, the next sort of phase. I worry about what the Taliban will be saying at an international level. You know, they've got their spokesperson who's got their brief and their talking points ready to go, spewing about women's rights, but then, you know, in the same breath talking about um, Sharia law and that, you know, they'll have no hesitation to um, cut people's hands off if they've been accused of adultery. Like, What? So there is a lot of that um, and I'll be watching closely, but I do worry that as soon as the eyes of the international community is, is averted, then, you know, Afghans once again will pay the highest price. A terrible way to finish the show, Diana, but thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you, Nasser, for having me. We always finish a show where there's never been a better time for free Palestine, but it's never been a better time for free Afghanistan. Go to the podcast and all those links that Diana mentioned will be there to the petition, how you can help, who you should listen to. Thanks for listening and share the podcast. And remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine or a free Afghanistan.